Now we're here. How do we get out? Now we're here. How do we get out? Presented by actor and animal activist Peter Regan and filmmaker Andrew Telling. Andrew, how are you? Nice to see you again. Thank you, Peter. Likewise, nice to see you too. You're Thank looking you. very well. Thank you. Fresh and uh, <laughs> quaffed. Full of the joys of not spring, but possibly the joys of oncoming winter. Oncoming winter, yeah. although we have had a few nice days, which is, you know, Wonderful. more than we ever bargain for. Yeah. Welcome, everybody, to the second episode of Now We're Here. How do we get out? And thank you to everybody who's emailed and tweeted just to say how much they enjoyed the first podcast and some of the some of the really lovely feedback we've received. Terrific, absolutely superb. Um, it's uh, uh, it makes it feel rather worthwhile, and we are absolutely. dealing with some quite serious subjects here, so it's not all um, light and bubbly and um, easily receivable absolutely sadly the nature of the conversations we have aren't always going to be like that indeed and they are we are trying to deal with um the subjects that are impacting so completely on our lives they are very very serious in fact um you watched um uh, david attenborough's wonderful extinction program i did um, which is i mean so enlightening and so devastating at the same time and completely opposite as far as we're concerned because I'm delighted to say that our first guest for our second podcast is the inspiring Philip Limbury, CEO of Compassion in World Farming. Um, I am deeply honoured to be Compassion's patron and ambassador and I'm a huge, huge fan not only of the charity but of your great work, Philip, and your books, Farmageddon, the dead zone, and I think the third one to come, 60 harvests left. Can you just give us uh, an introduction to say what drove you to write Farmageddon? Peter, it's such a pleasure to be with you today. And uh, what Farmageddon is about is about showing what is behind the closed doors of the factory farm. Mm-hmm. It's about not only showing what it's like for the animals in cages and confinement, but actually what it means for us as people. Mm-hmm. It's about showing that factory farming isn't just a niche issue uh, that is the, you know, the worrisome domain of, of a, a few animal lovers, but actually this is central to what is wrong with our food system. The fact that if we don't address industrial agriculture then our countryside will be impoverished, that our food will be the poorer in terms of nutritional quality, Mm. that uh, wildlife will disappear, is disappearing at a rate of knots, and that essentially, if we want a decent future for our children, then one of the key things we have to do is end factory farming. Mm -hmm. Can I just ask you a quick question in order to put it into perspective? Because I didn't have any idea at all about what intensive animal agriculture is. Do you know when it started and uh, how long it's been going on and when the destruction really set in? 
Factory farming really started uh, just after the Second World War. Uh, the piece of legislation which kicked it all off in the UK was the Agriculture Act in 1947. Mm. That's where it's rooted. And it was rooted in uh, you know, a desire to do a good thing, to feed a post-war population in war-torn UK, war-torn Europe. Uh, but what happened was that there was this law of unintended consequences kicked in. Animals started to disappear from the fields. Chickens were removed from uh, forest edges and bushes and put into cages so small mm. they couldn't stretch their wings. Pigs that would normally build metre-high nests for their piglets were put inside and again kept as mother pigs, as pregnant pigs, in, in crates where they couldn't turn around for weeks or months at a time, made to face the wall. Cattle taken out of fields where they turn grass that we can't eat into something which you know, meat eaters and, and uh, dairy drinkers uh, you can. Um, and they ended up in, in indoor feedlots, essentially, or mega dairies, as we now know them, permanently housed indoors and fed stuff which makes them produce so much milk that essentially their bodies break down. That's what that's what started to happen. And now in these enlightened times, um, you would think that factory farming is a thing of the past. In fact, when you look in the supermarkets and you look at the labels, fresh yeah. farm, fresh country, fresh, you'd think that, 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 that it is a thing of the past, but it's not. The so fact it's, is... So it's less than a century old? It's 70 years old, thereabouts. Uh, and that... Uh, the sad thing is that the vast majority of farmed animals in Britain, in Europe, in the world, are still factory farmed. Horrible. That's so, so it started off as an imperative to feed the nation after the Second World War. So was there a finite time imposed upon that idea? What let it get so out of hand that we now have our planet being destroyed by this very imperative? Well, it was a new way of thinking. So what was happening after the Second World War was that there was a post-war baby boom, because uh, that's what we do as a species. That was spe that's what species do, generally. They come off the back of a trauma mm -hmm. uh, and they breed. Um, what happened was there were essentially, in, in going into the 50s and 60s, there were three essential tool, tools in the box to, uh, to, to address uh, what looked like impending famine. Mm. You know, too many people, not enough food. Um, one way was to address population pressure. Uh, and that was taken off the table, essentially, by the, uh, by, by the developer by the developing world. Uh, the other way was to tackle consumption. Don't eat too much. Mm -hmm. Meat and dairy, for example. That was taken off the table by the developed world. Those two things became taboo. The thing which was left was technology. So factory farming is a technological solution to boost food production. Mm. The trouble is that the technologists overlooked the fact that what you need to grow farmed animals in these factory farmed conditions is you, you need vast areas of relatively scarce arable land elsewhere, growing wheat or corn or soya, to feed these animals. Mm. And it would have been okay if we didn't overdo it. But scroll forward 70 years and you can see we've hugely overdone it because now an area of farmland as big as the land surface of the entire European Union 
wow. is growing cereals and soya for factory farmed animals who then go on to waste the vast majority of the calories and protein of that food in conversion to meat, milk and eggs. So what this means is that we have lived in an, in an era where for 70 years we've been told that if you want to feed people, you need factory farming. Actually, when you pull back and you look at the facts of the matter, and I run the numbers on a regular basis, I can tell you that factory farming wastes enough food to feed 4 billion extra people on the wow. planet. Sure. That's more than the totality of humanity. What is that waste? Uh, to- what is it, the waste? Half of the to- totality of humanity. So it's waste because you feed human edible grain, yeah. cereals and soya to the animals, who then, uh, who then, through conversion, you only get about, uh, depending on whether it's chicken or pigs or beef, you only get... Uh, you know, two-thirds or a tiny percentage of protein back in the meat and the milk. So if, if we as humans had eaten the protein and the vegetable stocks that were available, took out the animal, we would be much more nutrition-rich. Exactly. The, huh. Yeah, it's yeah, amazing. amazing. That's a question amazing. I was That's actually going fact. to ask. Thanks for saying that, Andrew. Was why was feeding the nation, why was the emphasis on feeding the nation some form of animal product. Because um, meat, there was this mythology that grew up around it. The mythology was that that, that meat is the way to deliver a a proper protein to people. So that's what humans thought, is that actually if we give people a, a piece of pig or a piece of chicken, it's actually going to pack a greater punch than, than some grain. Yeah, yeah. And it, it was a, you know, it, it, you, you couldn't blame people for thinking that, but then you, you get into marketing and, of course, meat marketing, and this whole layer on layer of mythology grew up to the point where people still believe that protein equals meat mm-hmm. or milk yeah, or eggs absolutely. and that you don't get protein from plants. Well, again, I've looked at the numbers and the reality is that here and now, even though most people eat meat and drink milk, the reality is that most of humanity's protein comes directly from plants. That's amazing. It is. And now, can you specify that in relation to what kind of plant or is it a broad range of plants a lot of our protein comes for example from cereals yeah. uh, and beans yeah. so the the idea of you know to get a complete protein you need meat um you know it, it comes from the idea that that protein is made up of amino acids yeah. a range of amino acids and that meat has all of these amino acids whereas cereals or or beans don't have all of the amino acids but what happens is when you eat food, be that meat, milk, cereals or beans, your body breaks down the amino acids and puts them back together. So the way to have the complete range of amino acids is as simple as beans on toast. Wow. Bread, cereals yeah. and beans. Yeah. So that's a very simple way. And that's mm. why these new plant-based burgers like the Beyond Meat Burger, the Impossible Burger, the Corn Burger, mm-hmm. uh, these uh, have you know, complete proteins. These are, are, are great packages. Soya is a fantastic source of protein 
for people. The trouble is with soya, we feed the vast majority of it to factory farmed animals. Yeah, yeah. And in that way, we waste most of the, the protein value uh, available to humanity. What about the argument that I keep getting thrown at me is, we're hunter-gatherers, we've got um, these canines. Our brain only grew when we started eating meat. I mean, h- how do we address those old... Wives' tales. The wives' tales is good, yeah. Well, the, 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 what I would say on, on the canines is, you know, look in the mirror. See how long your canine teeth are compared with the rest of your teeth. Mm-hmm. The answer to that is mm. inconsequentially much at all you know they're they're, they're not they're not going to tear much apart they're not going to you know if you were to bite me peter yes it would hurt but you wouldn't really do a lot of damage i I hope (laughs) so really in, in effect um we are all victims of a corporate con somewhere along the line. Is that an unfair thing to say? It's a mythology, yeah. It's a mythology that's grown up to say that the only way to get decent protein is to eat meat. Now, I'm I'm not saying people, you know, most people eat meat. And I think that the the real way way forward is to give people a, a way forward, which is to say that actually, as a society, we're eating way too much meat. So let's mm. eat less meat perhaps move towards vegetarianism or veganism if that's where people are are ready to go. But ultimately, we do need for planetary health, for our own dietary health and for the good of animals to be eating more plants and less meat. And what about this issue that eating meat is much cheaper than eating plant-produced things? I mean, as there are so many hidden um, subsidies for meat, it seems to me meat is very expensive. Can you break that down a bit for us? Yeah, cheap meat is something we all pay for three times. First at the checkout, uh, which may not be very much. Uh, the second is in our through our taxes for agricultural subsidies here in Britain. We shell out more than three billion pounds a year in, in agricultural tax subsidies. That's your money and mine. Mm, awesome. And then the bigger cost huge cost again is in taxes for the cleanup cost to the environment and to our mm. health if people were to reduce their meat and dairy consumption the burden on the nhs would be much lower yeah interesting the meat eating industry employs a huge number of people globally how would the next step be taken if we were getting to a society globally where we stopped eating the meat where would the jobs come from where would those people find work well, I think the, the, the problem that we've got with, with jobs, be that in the meat industry or in plants, is that uh, they're, you know, they're rapidly being stripped out by machines. I live on a farm. It's not my farm, but uh, I have all the view and none of the work, so that's fantastic. <laughs> Brexit, I can tell you the net, uh, the, the net uh, fallout from that is that whereas I would use, usually have walked through the cornfields and spoken to people who were picking the corn on the cob uh, and, and, and you know, earning good money. These mm. people may have come from Central or Eastern Europe, uh, drawn for uh, you know, relative riches. Now they're all gone this summer. 
what they're replaced with is huge machines that sound like military aircraft taking off. I can tell you the peace and quiet of the countryside is gone. I say that as a preamble to, to, to that you know, it, it's simply not good enough for society to say, well, look, there are jobs involved, therefore yeah. we can't transition to a new way. And the reality, Andrew, the reality is that what factory farming is about is putting animals into cages and confinement and replacing people, i.e. jobs, with uh, machinery, with capital. So there are far fewer people involved in pushing the buttons to get the computers to feed hundreds of thousands of chickens that can't even stretch their wings. Far fewer people than if you were looking after animals as if they were living, breathing creatures. So in the pyramid of factory farming, you have a corporate structure at the top who have basically mechanised everything below them to avoid having to pay certain salaries and all of the costs which are associated with the human obviously, let alone those with the animal husbandry. If we, I don't know how much meat costs now because I haven't bought it for a long time, but supposing um, a, a, a kilo of beef costs 12 pounds, so the hidden cost within that could actually mean that that 12 pounds, because of government subsidy and because of destruction of arable land, could be three times that. Could it be, could it be 36 pounds? Well, two thirds of the cost of meat, uh, of, of producing an animal comes from feed. So that uh, devastation of the agricultural land to produce uh, uh, cheap industrially reared, uh, industrially grown uh, wheat or soya, that's what goes into the cost. So if you're subsidising the production of cereals, cheap, plentiful cereals for feeding feeding animals, that's how you distort Mm. the economics. The economics are hugely distorted Mm -hmm. in that way. It's actually far cheaper to feed animals on grass than it is on cereals if you were in a, you know, if you were taking into account all the externalities, the huge damage done to the environment, to our health and so on. And if you stripped out all of the distorting subsidies. What fascinates me, and I suspect I know the answer to this question, but when we learn something along the lines of that a a standard beef burger takes 4,000 litres of water to make. That's the expense to the environment plus all the other elements. When we learn about what you're saying about the cost of meat and all of those things globally, why don't governments step in and say, let's find another way? Yeah, absolutely. What a great question. And a big part of it is that the damages are hidden, uh, deliberately so. And the meat lobby, uh, which is worth uh, getting on for a trillion dollars globally, uh, is hugely powerful. It's a huge counterbalance. And that's what we as animal advocates are up against. And the dominant part of the meat lobby is the factory farmed meat lobby. So, you know, we're locked in. We're locked into a system which is essentially um, forcing us to collude with our own destruction. Absolutely, yeah, Yeah. absolutely. It's similar, I suppose, in in terms of the military and oil and the gun lobby in America, in that the product itself is by the by. It's the weight of the organisations behind it which drive it. Absolutely. We're locked into a status quo, and what we are 
facing up to now, and I think Sir David Attenborough's Extinction Programme put it very yeah. well, is that we're running out of time to sort this out. Yeah. We've got three huge juggernauts, all destined for a collision course in the next 10 or 20 years. Climate change, collapse of nature, mm-hmm. and uh, pandemic emergency. What underpins each of those three things is factory farming Mm -hmm. and the way that we produce our food industrially. Um, Factory farming is the biggest issue of animal cruelty on the planet by far. It's also a a major driver of wildlife declines. Uh, It it is responsible for driving um, a lot of greenhouse gases. It's a huge user of of water uh, and and a great reason why the soil that we all depend on, whether we eat animals or plants or a bit of both, the soil is now running out to the point where the UN warns us that if we don't mend our ways and move away from industrial agriculture, our soils could have just 60 harvests left before they're gone. Could you just take us through how many um, chickens may be in this uh, hangar, or whatever you want to call it, and from the moment they are brought in to the moment they end up on our plate, the dis- just give us an arc of the destructive process. So the chickens uh, in, a, in a factory farmed meat chicken uh, plant, uh, you'll have somewhere between uh, ten and 50,000 chickens uh, in a single shed. Uh, you'll have several sheds. You could have a million chickens in the same site. Um, They'll go in as tiny chicks. They'll come out ready for slaughter in just six weeks. Uh, They'll have been fed. How do they get to that point so quickly? They get to that point because they've been bred to grow very quickly. Mm. They're also fed um, high-protein diets, in other words, the cereals and soya that we could be eating. And they're also fed um, uh, antibiotics which help them grow faster. Now, in Europe, I should say in the UK and Europe, growth-promoting antibiotics um, is, is banned. Mm-hmm. Um, however, what happens is we use routine use of medicinal antibiotics that essentially do the same thing. They mask the diseases inherently of, uh, involved in having too many animals in too small space could I just, and sorry, increase the growth rate. Could I ask you, why are um, growth-producing antibiotics banned? What is it about them that's bad? Um, growth-promoting antibiotics have been banned. We got them banned, Compassion and World Farming and other organisations involved. Uh, we got them banned because they make the animals grow so fast that it, it makes them unhealthy. They go off their legs. Most meat chickens, um, even though they're just six weeks old, uh, are unable to walk properly. Some are... Uh, suffering you know, severe crippling where they just cannot walk at Because all. of their body mass through Because the of their body mass, yeah. Yeah, yeah. What I find baffling, utterly baffling, is that they've created a situation whereby they're growing chickens and storing chickens at this exponential rate. And to stop them dying because of the way they've been stored and grown, they're having to give them antibiotics. Yeah. Rather than create a way in which they don't have these crippling diseases which presumably would create a better yield and less use on antibiotics. There's a, there's a sense check there yeah, that's not been employed, it, surely. But that's the necessary part of factory farming, isn't it? That you don't actually apply that sense to it. But you really Absolutely. don't, do you? Yeah. They really don't. What happens with factory farming is you throw everything at it. You throw you know, the, the, the money in terms of the, the cages and the machinery. You throw money uh, you throw at it all, all of the feed. 
um, and and uh, antibiotics too. And you may think, oh, he's, he's overplaying the antibiotics thing. Well, I can tell you that globally, 73% of all antibiotics are fed to farmed animals. That's terrifying. That's, that's, that is terrifying, isn't it? How many men, how many stockmen are mm. looking after these chickens? Very few, a handful at most. So six or ten looking after 20,000? Oh, probably quite a bit less than that. You know, one or two. Wow. Um, uh, for that number of... And what is, the, what is their function? Oh, their function is to essentially make sure that the machinery is all working, that the, uh, you know, the computers are doing their thing and feeding on a timed basis, that there's no blockages in the water, and that they pick up the dead ones. So those chickens that are raised in that factory farm environment, they then would go to a supermarket. Now, what, at what point does the supermarket rebrand that chicken in a way that makes it more palatable for the purchaser? Well, they they repackage it uh, as yeah they they obviously take all the feathers off they um, often take their, their head off and what have you so it doesn't quite look like a chicken and then they call it fresh. Um, I know from research that I've done uh, you know in the past that uh, the word fresh fools about a third of people into thinking that that bird was free range. Indeed, when it was nothing yes. wow, but can I can I just ask you just how do we get this? Twenty to 50,000 bunch of chicks onto the next stage of their journey? What happens? Well, two things happen. Uh, one of two things. So one is either a gang comes in, a catcher gang that goes around and grabs the chickens by their legs and as many as they can hold and then throws them essentially into crates on the back of big lorries and takes them off to slaughter. Or, hey presto, a big machine comes along uh, and essentially gathers up the, the chickens. Sucks them up, you mean? Um, there's a rotator goes yeah. on, like uh, you know, a rotating brush that sort yes. of guides the chickens onto a conveyor and they go up this conveyor and into the crates, into the lorry and off to the slaughterhouse. They get to the slaughterhouse and, you know, again, you know, quick as you like, uh, they're pulled out of the crates, put onto a fast-moving slaughter line. They're put upside down, which, of course, is uh, highly unnatural and highly aversive to the chickens. Mm. Uh, and then they're off, they're, uh, their heads dip into an electrified water bath, which uh, you, you hope stuns them into unconsciousness. But a lot of them, we know, um, get uh, painful shocks and are not rendered unconscious. Uh, and then they have their throats cut and, uh, and then bleed it, to are death. Are their throats cut by a machine or by an individual? They're cut by a machine. There is a backup of a person, but generally it's cut by a machine. What's remarkable is somebody had to invent the chicken throat cutting machine and an electrified bath. How many in a day? would go through this process? Ooh, um, I couldn't give you a figure off the top of my head for a day, but in this country, in the UK, getting on for a billion in a year. Wow. Just uh, in the UK? Yeah, a thousand million. We've seen during the COVID pandemic that the conditions for the people are pretty... Horrible. Uh, questionable, yeah. And so people are very close together, uh, working in, in cold uh, conditions um, that are conducive to viruses you know, continuing to, to stay alive and to thrive. Lots of stainless steel, which we know, again, helps uh, viruses survive. And so there is a real question, I would say, over why we're not testing meat for covid before selling it to people. Yeah, interesting. Presumably, yeah. because we've learned that the the COVID virus was created via this disease which moved from 
animals into humans due to the way in which the animals were stored and kept in a presumably a Chinese market. This sounds exactly the same to me. This, this sounds no different in terms of the conditions, the storage and the risks. Well, the fact is that factory farming, keeping lots of animals in a confined space in uh, you know, dirty, windowless conditions, provides the perfect breeding ground for new and more dang- dangerous strains of virus. You know, it's the perfect breeding ground for the next pandemic. Yeah. Uh, and in fact, it was the breeding ground for one of the last pandemics. We've all forgotten swine flu. Yeah. Happened yeah, only yeah. 10 years ago. Yeah. Factory farming made that. It was made in the pig factory farms of North America, North America and Mexico. How is a, a pig processed? So pigs will live for till they're five to six months, uh, and then they will be taken out of their generally you know, stinky, crowded pen and, uh, and put into a truck, taken off for slaughter. Uh, and the what used to happen is that they would get to the slaughterhouse and have electric tongs applied to their head, electrocute them into unconsciousness and then have their throats cut. Now what happens is they are herded into a gas chamber. They are gassed using carbon dioxide, high concentrations of carbon dioxide gas, which, you know, there's a reason why you breathe in oxygen and then you naturally breathe out carbon dioxide because at high concentrations, it's aversive. How aversive? Seriously aversive. High concentrations essentially acidify in your lungs, in your eyes, in your nose, all the wet parts of you. So these pigs die in abdomen terror, essentially burning from Mm. the inside out. And this goes on for up to a minute or more before they lose consciousness. In humans, excess CO2, similar to drowning, induces panic. So basically what we're saying is these pigs are panicked to death. How many pigs would be herded into this locker where they are gassed? They go in in groups. It'd be difficult for me to give you a definitive okay. number, mm. but uh, mm. you're, you're quite a few, so half a dozen, maybe a dozen in a single pen. I've certainly seen several in a single pen. So to your point, Andrew, these are terrified, panicked animals yes. that are inducing further terrified, panicked uh, responses from their, uh, from, from their pen mates. And these are animals that have a similar sensibility to a dog. Absolutely. Yeah, um, and, and uh, intelligence. Would we do this to dogs? Um, exactly. Pigs are, are as intelligent as the average dog, and, yes. and yet we're doing this. And to be very clear, Peter, this is non-stun slaughter. These animals are not stunned. Let me be very clear. What is the, uh, the, the, what do we mean when we talk about stunning animals before slaughter? We mean rendering them unconscious immediately. Yes. Yeah. And then, yeah. you know, and then, and then killing them in a way which they know nothing about it. And what, and I can tell you scientifically, um, that if, if, if I pushed a pin into my skin or that of a dog, which I would never do, um, I wouldn't feel it immediately. I would feel it within a tenth of a second. Yeah. So to have an effective stun, you need to render unconsciousness within a tenth of a second. Now, electricity can do that. You know, if you put your fingers in a plug, you won't know about it. No, no. Um, but it, with, with carbon dioxide, those animals are fully conscious for up to a minute in this terrified, burning from the inside out wow. state. It is non-stun slaughter of a most terrible, 
kind. At the back end of it all is a human being inventing such a thing. There is a human being thinking to themselves, well, this will do. This is fine. Yes. You know, yeah, well, of course, there were human beings that developed those ideas for humans as well. Well, well over of course. Years ago. Yeah, so, so the precedent is already set in a most appalling way anyway. But we have this poor sentient creature gassed to this point. They are then presumably shoveled out where they are then hooked up and have their, have their throats that's up for bleeding. That's exactly it. And then they're dismembered. And how are they packaged? So the chickens will be packaged, packaged as fresh. Quite often, how, yeah. how are these pigs packaged to, to be uh, acceptable to the consumer? Well, in a similar way, they're, they're, you know, what they're not labelled as is factory farm produced or intensively produced or crated pork or this pig died having in, in, in a gas chamber. None of that is on the label. You get labels which are marketing terms designed yes. to sell you this. And the thing which they don't want you to know is that it's a piece of an animal. That suffered. And Philip, what about the statistic I hear so often about globally we're eating less meat? You know, there is a lot of a lot of talk about people eating less meat, mm-hmm. and uh, certainly, you know, there's always a time lag on statistics. But when you look at statistics that have become available, really official statistics, what you can see is that there is some drop in the amount of red meat that people are eating, and that's what gets reported. Mm-hmm. But that is uh, more than made up by an increase in consumption of meat from chickens and fish and to some extent pigs. So overall, we are eating more meat. If you want that on a global basis, I can tell you that you're taking two markers, 2014 to 2017. Globally, we are eating per person 1.5% more meat. Gosh. In Europe, it's 2.5%, and in America, it's 5%. The fact is that the Americans, despite the, the, the rise, the very welcome rise of plant-based burgers and mm. what have you, uh, right here, right now, uh, Americans are eating more meat per person than ever. That's, That's terrible. Remarkable. And is it, as America, as indeed we are ourselves, has the biggest obesity problem on the planet. Is that connected to the eating of meat? It's absolutely connected to the eating of meat and particularly the eating of factory farmed meat because what happens is when you take animals out of their natural environment, cows out of fields, uh, chickens out of forests and pigs out of woodland edges, you take them off of their natural diet, you then feed them lots of grain and what that does is makes for fatty meat. So taking chicken as an example, when my mother first bought chicken in the 1970, it was a treat. Yeah. It was for a Sunday meal. Mm-hmm. Of course. Compared with the chicken that she bought in 1970, today's supermarket chicken uh, will have up to uh, uh, twice, uh, to two to three times the fat and a third of the protein. Gosh. So you can see that we are having to eat much more fat to get the same amount of nutrition. Mm. So in a lot of those nutritional... Um, snippets of information are actually based on 1970s meats. So people rely on the fact that in 1970 there was this protein and that much fat. Yeah. And they haven't changed they haven't the story. Changed it, yes. It's a mythology that's grown up. Just like you can only get high-quality protein from animal products, the mythology has grown up that yeah. chicken meat is a low-fat meat. 
You know, come on, guys. This may have been true when my mother was alive and buying for me the first time. But no, um, not anymore. The world has moved on to a worse place. Well, that's it then, Andrew. Um, we've learned an awful lot this afternoon. We have. There's a lot to take away. There's a lot to think about. And yes, we are going to continue this conversation with Philip Limbury in our next podcast. There has been so much discussed that it's almost impossible to fit into one podcast. Please, if you get an opportunity, share what you've heard today. It's so important um, to make people aware of these issues that Philip has made us aware of. And of course, please do get in touch with us if what's been discussed in this podcast has swayed you or changed your opinions in any way, or whether they've just galvanized what you already think. Please let us know the details to get in touch are at the end of this podcast. Yes, and if people are in doubt about what they can do, because so many people say, I'm just one person, what can I do? Well, one simple thing they can do is to follow Compassion and World Farming. Absolutely. And just a note on that, Peter, I have spent time on the Compassion and World Farming site prior to our discussions with Philip. And it's an incredibly user-friendly site. Indeed. And I have to mention that because I think... The fewer barriers there are to the solutions, to the ideas, to the resolutions, the easier and quicker and and more effective it's going to be. Absolutely. As their ambassador and their patron, I can only agree with that 100%. (laughs) Bless you. So I'll see you on the next one. Likewise. We always want to hear from you. So whether you have a question, an observation or a suggestion, please get in touch with Peter and Andrew by emailing life at orangeplanetpictures.com or search for Orange Planet Pictures on Twitter, Facebook and Instagram. Thank you for listening and we'll see you next time.